Well, here on Late Era, we talk a lot about second acts and artists who came back after a period of dormancy. So what do you do when you're in a period of dormancy and you need to bounce back? Well, for me, the answer is Grady's Cold Brew. I drink a glass at least every day. It's an essential in my household. And the amount of options that they sell makes it a perfect gift and a perfect item for anyone. You can get a cold brew kit so that you can make as many cups as you want. Or you could just get the cold brew concentrate, mix it yourself, pour it over some ice. It's a local company uh, in the Bronx, and we've all been drinking it for years. We just love the stuff, so thanks, Grady's. And you have an opportunity to uh, get some money off your order if you order from their website. And it's your first order. If you put in the promo code LATEERA20, that's capital L, capital E, LATEERA20, you will get 20% off. Just check out the options on the site because they are pretty amazing. Whether you get the box or the kit, which will brew you up 36 cups, uh, you'll save you'll save a lot of money on that and uh, get some jugs for the uh, the home office. You know, we love it. It was a dark and a stormy night. Everyone was at the windy. They weren't the winding type. So they went up on the train, bitch, where the weather was howling. Oh, oh, my, my When that train comes rolling by No paper thin walls, no folks about No one else can hear Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Late Era The podcast brought to you by Osiris Media About the late career albums by the titans of pop rock jazz all sorts of music uh on each episode of this podcast we dig into another late career album whether it's an unheralded masterpiece or just a piece of shit uh Mm. either way it's worth discussion and uh this week we are talking about an album that definitely does not fall into the second category uh This is Taming the Tiger, the 16th album by Joni Mitchell, released in the year 1998. Incredibly beautiful record. Uh, My name's Andy Cush. I'm a contributing editor at Pitchfork. I play bass in the band Garcia Peoples, and I'm a co-host of this podcast you're listening to, Late Era. I'm Winston Cook-Wilson. I'm a musician in the band's, uh, well, in the band Office Culture, and I play music as Winston CW. And I'm the co-host of this podcast, Late Era, and the co-host of the podcast, Welcome to Chicago, about the band with horns, Chicago. I am also, I should have mentioned, a co-host of Welcome to Chicago. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Sam. Oh, it's okay. Uh, I'm Sam Sadomsky, frequent guest on Welcome to Chicago. Uh <laughs> I kid. I host, I co-host it and this podcast, and I'm a staff writer at Pitchfork, and I make all kinds of music under uh, different names, among them Bird Calls, Bird Calls Inc., BCI. Uh, happy to be here. Happy to be talking Joni. So happy to be talking Joni. This is like the first ep where, I mean, it's kind of a spoiler, but we all love this album, and uh, we're here to just fucking nerd out about it. Yeah. And- 
the first one where all of us e- e- even had knowledge of this album. I feel like for at least one person on every episode so far, this has been a new investigation of something. This is the first time we're tackling something that's been in all of our lives for for a while. Yeah, it's true, and it's also a good opportunity to talk about an album we all love that I still feel like doesn't hasn't had a fair shake critically. I think all of Joni's late era work is really beautiful and kind of got a raw deal from, you know, critics and the public in general. Definitely the label. I feel like it it must have been you Sam that told me when I, a, a while ago that you really loved this record and you know, I didn't I didn't know it at all and and I know a lot of pretty diehard Jenny Mitchell fans mostly of, you know, the, the late 70s stuff that uh you know had never thought to listen to this one and i think the 90s one people listen to mostly that of of people that i i know turbulent indigo was a bigger album but i feel like now like heads that are like Joni fans talk a lot more about night ride home which is 1991 or two album but i this has been a this album Along with Turbulent Indigo, which is of a piece of it in, in, in several ways, but also very different, they have like been the probably my most listened to music of the past like year. I would I, I just like they've influenced my writing a lot, my music songwriting a lot. Um, they just really move me. Some of the songs on on this record, uh, I just listen to them over and over and over again, and. Uh, yeah, like it's just like didn't you know it? It really got a, it's really gotten a raw deal. I don't know. Even with even with Joni Heads, I feel like even with Completists, it's not the '90s one people want to talk about. But it's like her second to last album. People at the time, it seemed like they thought it was going to be her last album. Well, I think she said, yeah, she said some stuff around like you know just not. We'll we'll get into it, but not not feeling the same urge to write songs. I would also say that if you're listening to this and you're not deep, deep into Joni Mitchell, that even if this were the first Joni Mitchell album you ever heard, I think there's plenty of beauty to be found in it. And it has um, such a specific sound that has to do with the fact that she was playing um, like MIDI guitar, controlling synths with her guitar. Uh, Wayne Shorter, the great sax, uh, jazz saxophone player, is playing all over it. And uh, even if you're not a huge Joni fan and you're just interested in, say, ambient music, kind of new age stuff, ECM, mm-hmm. jazz, solo guitar stuff, solo guitar, even like va- if you love Vaporwave, you'll probably like this album. Like even just aside from her, as always, wonderful songwriting, it has such a wild and distinct uh, sonic character to it that's like really unlike um, almost any other record. I feel like people might hear MIDI guitar and be and be put off, but I feel like some people like <laughs> who have a different aesthetic preference for older yeah. Ner- stuff, nerds and losers, n- big idi- right. big fuck. It is hilarious that we have a group of friends where the term MIDI guitar is like, oh, sick, like I'll check that out. But for that's a, true. A vast, yeah. Maybe that's like the biggest filter bubble that I live in. Is that to me? I think that MIDI guitar. And fretless bass and Chapman stick are all things that would make people think, "Oh, cool! That's a record that yeah. I do want to hear." <laughs> yeah, there's no Chapman stick right. on this, unfortunately. Not, not to say that that no, no, no. This record doesn't have right. the other things on it. There's but, no you know, uh, it's war a, guitar. Of the same ilk. Yeah, 
Um, no. <laughs> but what I was going to say is I, I think that like it would be hard to come out of this album and not have a new appreciation for the capabilities of a MIDI guitar expressively, no matter what you're, you know, because it, the sound of it really connects back, I think, to Hijira in some ways. The, the guitar sound that's distinctive to that record and the album harkens back to that period in a lot of ways but it's also completely different so it's not like some it's not like a return to form album even though i think some critics might have treated the 90s as a return to form thing but anyway it's a great fucking album and uh you know so i'm i'm finished with the gradies i have a little brie on the side here i bought some brie the uh, at the oh Grady's and Brie. Yeah, and whiskey That's and a seltzer. Mm. So I'm ready to, I'm settling in for a, a nice, juicy talk. Yeah, what a good mixture. The Brie is pretty tasteless. It's not the, it's not the best. It's not the best. Maybe as, as we go on to sort of listen to this record and talk about the songs, you can talk about which of your beverages uh, complements uh, each song and uh, for what reason. Which of the songs makes the Brie taste good as opposed yeah. to like nothing? I love to <laughs> hang out with you guys and talk music. Uh-huh. Me too. Yeah, me too, man. Any personal update? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for listening. <laughs> Wait, any, any any personal updates for the fans who give a shit about us as people? I know one I want to say before we proceed. Sam released a record uh, today on the day of taping. And uh, everyone needs to check it out. It's a. It was yesterday, but sorry, yesterday. Doesn't matter. Some friend. You want to talk about it? Oh yeah, I'll be quick. Um, it's a collection of country covers. I made it in about a week. Um, some of them I've been singing for a really long time. They're fun to sing. Others I kind of pulled in for the project. Not a lot to say. I I didn't want to. I wanted to pick all songs I already knew the words to, so I pretty much did that. I had to like refresh on a few of them, but it's up on Bandcamp. It's free. Uh, I've got another like actual album coming out in the next month or so that I'm really psyched about. But it's all in good fun. Always prolific, and that's thebirdcalls.bandcamp.com, folks. Thanks, folks. Yeah. Oh, no impressions today. You know why? Because I haven't gotten enough feedback. Maybe an impression will come up in the course of the episode, but I'm looking for listener feedback. Is that how it's going to work? <laughs> You're going to like punish people for not telling you? Ta- if you like the impression segment, it will come back. But for now, there won't be any. Are you looking for feedback from us, from like our bosses at Osiris, uh, the average Anyone. Fan? Anyone. <laughs> well, I'll ask for feedback. I, I thought... I thought there was a lot of room to improve, but I thought there was a lot of potential. That's a meaningless statement, kind of. <laughs> Just keep at it. Yeah, don't let uh, this don't let this get you down. Um, that's exactly what I meant to say. It seemed like working on these impressions was a good thing for you, you know. And, yeah, uh, I just feel for the listeners so, all day. Winston was texting us. I've, I, you guys are, aren't going to believe <laughs> what, what I'm preparing. I just feel like I'm like a court jester, you know, up here dancing for the court, and I'm not getting anything. Like I feel like 
what am I, a, f- a clown to you? Do I look like a clown? <laughs> uh, like, is it haha funny that I'm like a clown up here? Oh, are, we, uh, is getting, this, uh, are you doing Sting again? This is Robert De Niro. It's a surprise <laughs> impression. Haha funny? Uh, I'm a mob guy. It's, I'm, a, I'm a tough guy. I'm a the, wise uh, guy. One of the burglars from Home Alone, but it's the tall one, I think. That sounds like uh-huh. that. the tall burglar uh, from Home Alone. No, <laughs> no, but insanely hot. Okay. I uh, um, well, I do I do business, uh, and I you know I'll break a break somebody's legs if I gotta. Oh, oh Billy Pacino. Joel. <laughs> oh, Billy Joel. No, guys, so got it. it's Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. Oh. Uh, I, was clo- I was close with the humble. Close. Closer than I was. I got you with that trick about the impressions. Yeah. We keep it. I think that was one of your best ones yet. Thank you. It was that or Cartman, and uh, I think it was best to go that direction. <laughs> oh, thank God. Oh, oh, all right, folks, let's commence. Joni Mitchell, Taming the Tiger. Yeah. Well, before we get into the music, I thought this is a worthwhile artist to talk about our connections to. Because Winston, I remember the first time I listened to your music, I really heard like a Joni influence in a way that I feel like I don't hear in a lot of songwriters. There was just a feeling like that you really internalized her chord voicings and just like the way she constructs sentences. So I don't know, you seem to have a really deep appreciation and love for her music. So when did that start? Well, I should say that like I don't think that I'm capable of writing like Joni Mitchell at all. So it's like the highest praise possible that you would say that, and that anyone has said that about. Well, it totally like conjures the same mood for me. Yeah, you know, sometimes that's uh, incredible. I, I feel like I never thought about it consciously until like the, a few years ago, and it got a little more overt aesthetically, maybe with like the jazz records of hers. But I was always interested in like speech speech like phrasing and and how she how she like made that work in a in the course of these songs and had them function like monologue style on some level but also often be you know have these rich choruses and and uh her piano voicings and 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 stuff really appealed to me just from like my interest in jazz her her like reference points with like miles davis she just uses chords to create a mood in a way that you just can't, you know, that just like a normal three chord thing. I, I always kind of need the shifting some notes in the chord. I just can't get away from that fascination. And I can't get away from a lot of things about her as a writer that, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling on. I have been listening to her since I was like in middle school, just like Ladies of the Canyon in Blue, like my mom had. And then, I don't know, I didn't come around to, like, Court and Spark until later, like, college. And then at a certain point, I got Hissing of Summer Lawns, and that was, like, my favorite thing. I just totally blew my mind. That is one of the albums that's influenced me most uh, musically, I think, ever. But now I think my favorite is Hijira. And just recently, I've really been investigating the 90s stuff. And Sam, when did you... Your your knowledge, as as always, is like more encyclopedic than mine. Like you pushed me towards some albums that I hadn't listened to. Yeah, I I think like I really started listening to Joni the summer after my freshman year of college. I was like back in my parents' house, and the album that like totally unlocked it for me was Hijira at that time. 
where it, I feel like it was a lot of what I was looking for at the time. I don't know why it just hit me. Like it hit me so hard. And like from that point, I like her music never really went away. Like I just kind of always kept it around. And for pretty much every year since then, I can tell you like what Joni Mitchell song I was listening to constantly on repeat. Then I think like when I moved to New York and I was doing grad school was when that box set came out that was like Love Has Many Faces. Mm -hmm. That was like four discs and career spanning. Yeah. And I got really into the songs on it that I didn't know because I had mostly spent time with her 70s stuff. But um, yeah, I around that time I got super obsessed with Night Ride Home um, and super obsessed with the second half of Turbulent Indigo. Like I just remember being in New York, like my first fall here and just listening to like Yvette in English, that song she wrote with David Crosby, like on repeat. Yeah. Like you were saying earlier about how like all you want to listen to, like when you're into 90s Joni is 90s Joni. But like, it really is that kind of music that just once you're like keyed into it, I feel like it really isn't like any other music, like the chords she uses, the way it's orchestrated, the way she was writing and singing at the time. I don't, her career is just like really deep and I feel like it invites really personal connections to it that are also really elusive, which is why I was kind of like curious about her influence on you because like, I don't know, maybe I'm like just like not a sophisticated enough musician. Like I feel like I could never write something that sounds like Joni Mitchell, no matter how hard I tried. Like it's just like its own essential item, her music, you know, there's like nothing like it. Andy? Um, I grew up with her like late sixties and early seventies music. My dad is a huge Joni Mitchell fan. His pushing me towards Joni was something that it took me years to like understand how good it actually was. Her sense of melody is so much more sophisticated and complex than just about anyone else in her genre. As someone who's casually approaching her music, it can be hard to find something to latch on to because um, there are few obvious hooks. But then the more you listen to it, it just like sinks into your blood and suddenly you can sing along with every little unexpected twirl of melody, every strange rhythmic cadence that she's throwing into her phrases. Uh, it suddenly seems to... It becomes like the most natural sounding thing in the world. Um, and for a while, that was where I was at, mostly kind of like into the canonical, like Ladies of the Canyon up through Blue, Court, Court and Spark kind of thing. A few years ago, probably, as honestly with so many um, major musical discoveries in my life, Winston urged me to get into some of this stuff through the 70s. I had been into Hegira a little bit because she plays Coyote in The Last Waltz and I'm like just such a nerd for the band and that kind of thing. So that was like my entry point in a way to like Joni of the 70s. And then for a couple years, it was just like the only music sort of as Sam was saying that I listened to or wanted to listen to. She became like a really tremendous influence when I'm writing songs. Certainly it's like, like her and Leonard Cohen are sort of like mother and father figures. You're like aspiring to emulate in a way. Kajira and Hissing of Summer Lawns have got to both be like in my greatest albums of ever made short list. 
had a particularly good experience listening to Hijira in the desert in Joshua Tree while coming down from an acid trip at the beginning of this year. Yeah, baby. And uh, perfect context to be listening to that music. 90s, Joni, I'm not quite as familiar with, I'll be honest. This was another album that was introduced to me by Winston a while ago. Sounds like introduced to me by Winston via Sam. I've since gotten into Turbulent Indigo, but the rest of the 90s are kind of a, a mystery to me. Um, that I'm excited to to learn more about. I think it's interesting that you brought up the stuff about uh, melody, it being hard to latch onto, because I think that's like a really big part of the kind of reception history of her music and why it challenged people when it came out. And yeah, uh, I think we'll talk about that because I feel like we should kind of like quickly just try to give people a crash course in the history leading up to uh, what we're talking about here, getting getting into basically the 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 last act of her career. Yes, this is the Who is Joni Mitchell segment. Most of you probably know who Joni Mitchell is, but just in case you don't, one of the you know if you if someone said the greatest singer songwriter who whoever lived, it's pretty hard to to tell that person they're wrong or to launch a reasonable argument against them. Uh, she gets her start in the late 60s playing folk music uh, in clubs in Canada, even though now she would say like what she was playing wasn't even really folk back then, but it was just sort of an easy box uh, to put her in. She's a kind of hippie-ish looking woman singing songs with a guitar, so in the late 60s, we're going to call that folk. She moves to the U.S., kind of gets hooked up with the folk rock scene in LA, mostly playing guitar at this point, makes some albums that, you know, you could reasonably group her in with people like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, but very quickly kind of cuts her own path away from that, especially as she starts writing on the piano more often. Uh, Albums like Ladies of the Canyon start to have more of this distinctive orchestral feeling to them. Her melodies are getting more involved, winding and complex. She's treating the guitar sort of more like a piano than most guitarists are treating it, as Winston alluded to earlier. Uh, Famously, her chord voicings are just so sophisticated compared to like your open chords on the guitar. And this was true even in these early days. If you're a guitar player, one of the best things you can do is start learning Joni Mitchell songs because like everyone is in a different tuning and everyone will totally open your mind to the harmonic possibilities of your instrument. 1970, she makes, I believe 1970, makes an album called Blue. Is that right? 1970, fact checkers. That's sort of seen as the pinnacle of... 71. um, 71. 71. Her early um, years kind of singing these more biographical songs. It's like one of the best singer-songwriter albums of all time. And uh, after, including Blue, and then after that, she just gets more and more involved in jazz music. And her music becomes even further away from rock and folk than it was before. At which point, I'll hand the history over to Winston. Right. Well, the first kind of salvo there, there's like a transitional album called For the Roses, which is really underrated and great. But Court and Spark, which is really the kind of full band, heavily jazz influenced record, but also extremely pop oriented, a really big commercial success. Um, You know, it had her one top 10 single on it called Me. 
and uh, she like was nominated for a bunch of Grammys. It was just like a new phase in her career. She released also like a live album after it called Miles of Isles, which uh, also did fairly well. And she was touring with the band, this band called the LA Express that she'd put together. And that was like, you know, it was a big, it was a huge moment for her. But meanwhile, she was writing other songs. Um, these are songs that would uh, be on Hissing of Summer Lawns and Tijera. She put out the Hissing of Summer Lawns in, in 75. Around this time, she joined up with Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review tour. I think it came out like sort of during that time. Hissing of Summer Lawns was not, had a lot, very mixed reviews because it was the first Joni Mitchell record where I, like the word I does not appear much. They're short stories about, generally I would say about, about women in destructive relationships or bad situations and like kind of socio-cultural critique of a certain story, these kind of vignettes, using even more jazz musicians including a lot of Miles collaborators. The textures remind you of In a Silent Way by Miles. Really deep roads uh, and piano textures. It's like, um, it's just beautiful. But there was this critique also about the lack of melody, the lack of hooks. There was also just like a lot of really sexist criticism of it. People wanted her to be confessional. They didn't want her to be like kind of aggressive and cynical and said that in, in so many ways. But um, anyway didn't do amazing she she cut her tour behind it short it was just kind of like a time of transition and then she took a big road trip with friends to maine and then she drove to california alone and this road trip gave birth to the majority of hajira really stripped back for the most part uh, guitar based arrangement the big player on it other than her is jaco pastorius the famously uh eccentric jazz bass player who plays fretless bass has a super distinctive sound it it was well received but it you know these things are all not selling that great the singles really aren't charting but the records are doing okay then she get, got really deep into jazz stuff that that really kind of took her away from the zeitgeist and really kind of made her commercially like a pariah Don Juan's Reckless Daughter was an extremely jazz-influenced double-disc thing. Very ambitious. There's a song called Paprika Plains, which is a 16-minute epic song with these big orchestrations, and that is supposedly the song that Charles Mingus heard, the famous jazz bassist and composer, that made him want to work with Joni. Joni was a huge fan. They started working on music, making music together. He died in 1979. She finished what they were working on, put out this album, Mingus, which is easily her most inaccessible thing at the time. Features her like putting lyrics to a lot of Mingus's tunes, some of them very well known. Really confused a lot of people. Then she went on a tour, Shadows and Light, which was with Pat Metheny and Jocko and like a bunch of really hotshot jazz musicians that got a live album. It's an iconic performance that also had a movie associated with it. But amazing album if you're into that yeah. era of Joni and you haven't dug into Shadows and Light. That's my current favorite Joni thing. It's it's pretty incredible. Anyway, so 80s time of transition. I'll just talk about the first thing and pass it over to Sam. But she, she got involved with uh, Larry Klein, who is like a bassist and sound engineer. He was young in his mid-20s, kind of like looking for 
an outlet they became romantically involved and this record wild things run fast which came out in 1982 kind of reflects a more like blissful state of mind that she was in and it's more of a return to like a rock it's like a rockin record it has a lot of weird kind of experiments on it but a couple of her most amazing songs actually i think chinese cafe on chain melody is like top three but yeah it, it was weird it didn't do super well and then she kind of continued to search sam yeah uh in joni mitchell's own words she said the 80s were just awful for me and they were um her i think she was signed to geffen as like the first artist on the label with neil young yeah and Neil Young's first record for Geffen was Trans, you know, his electronic experiment. And hers was Wild Things Run Fast, which to me could have been a really big commercial success, but I just think was presented wrong. And she's, like Winston said, a lot of the re- critical response to her work was really sexist, you know, because she's trying to write songs about where she's at in life now. And I think people want the sort of like blue two from her so that's kind of the story of her in the 80s is everything she puts out the label doesn't really back it the press doesn't really get into it it's too experimental to really chart or do numbers in the public eye so you get dog eat dog which is this political statement produced by thomas dolby that's a really cool album and then you get chalk mark in a rainstorm which is another album with some huge highlights um And that one kind of sets the atmosphere for the work she would do in the 90s, which is a lot more laid back. The word I use to describe the sound she goes for is haiku-esque. It's really pretty and spare, and she kind of moves away from the busier arrangements that became kind of intrinsically linked to her songwriting in the 70s. So once the 90s starts, she makes a record called Night Ride Home that is one of her best for me um it's a really serene record that introduces this kind of ambience that she never really lets go of from that point forward follows that record up with turbulent indigo which is her first big comeback record in the sense that it wins a grammy it sells a little more the reviews are pretty unanimously best album since the 70s Um, It also helps that in the 90s, trends are starting to turn toward her influence again. There's some of the best songwriters in the 90s are openly saying, I'm super influenced by Joni Mitchell, you know, Sarah McLachlan, that crew, Katie Lang, that kind of thing. And yeah, and that kind of takes us up to where we are now, which is a moment in the 90s where Joni Mitchell is sort of experiencing a long overdue renaissance or resurgence where her work is being taken seriously. Yeah. And it's a funny indicator of Joni Mitchell's sensibility that once that happens, Taming the Tiger is positioned in some ways as a reaction against the fact that people really liked Turbulent Indigo and that the, uh, that the industry latched onto it in a way that maybe she felt was like cynical or, you know, after many years of total disengagement with her work felt like it was just more kind of based on an opportunity than uh, genuine interest or something like that. Right. Yeah. So you're bringing up another really important thing about Joni Mitchell is this sort of, you know, her, cause we're talking a lot about the way people perceived her 
but the way she perceived the world, I think, is also really important. Like, to follow up that quote about the 80s were awful to me, the next sentence is, I was butchered by dentists. That's a story we don't <laughs> want to get into. But I spent five years in dental hell. You know, it's like, yeah. I think <laughs> she, I think she early on realized, like, the game is rigged. I don't want their approval. And I think in a lot of ways, she kind of played into that and became antagonistic in a way that was sort of allowed if you're Bob Dylan or like a man. But I think a lot of people saw her behaving that way or treating her career that way. And I don't know, there wasn't a precedent for it or, you know, the industry didn't accept it. Yeah, there's also I don't know if you were intentionally calling out to a lyric on this album from Lead Balloon where she says an angry man is just an angry man. An angry woman is a bitch. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think she like, like I said, she learned that at a point in her career where she was like, well, you know what? I'm not going to play that game anymore. And I think, you know, that's like just another example of her integrity. There's definitely, you know, this sort of overtly cynical perspective that comes in the music in the later 70s but you know the 80s dog eat dog was a really as she said an angry album and then feels like on the albums after that it's just like kind of a worldview started to solidify that was sort of malleable in terms of the songs but you can definitely tell just yeah that industry frustration seeps into a lot of them and just a general just fatigue of dealing with men in power positions and dealing with men in relationships. And a lot of, she was with a lot of very famous men at different points who wanted different things from her and treated her poorly. And, uh, I don't know. Sometimes when you read what she says about like, you know, Bob Dylan or David Crosby or grand Nash or Leonard Cohen, it's like, she'll acknowledge what they, what they do. That's, that's good from her perspective, but she kind of, she t- talks about them kind of like man children, you know, like she with Taming the Tiger, this late album, it feels like kind of a summary of a lot of her feelings about powerful men. There's a song about rape, women being silenced about their experiences. And there's several music industry related things. Um, and there's some of that on Turbulent Indigo too. But I think actually what's interesting about Taming the Tiger is the, the kind of sweeter aspects of it too it comes at a major positive point for her during the making of it. She's reunited with her daughter that she gave up for adoption 35 years earlier. And the song little green famously from blue is about, is about her daughter, but they reconnected during the making of this album. And so some, there are things that are kind of linked to her daughter. Then there's like a reflection on her mother. There are just a lot of, themes here that seem well they seem kind of like you might put on your last album and you know she kind of said she was doing that yeah i mean this is important context and another reason i'm really glad we're doing this one on the podcast because it brings up an important point which is that i think Joni mitchell and a lot of women songwriters don't get to they don't get the leeway that an artist like Dylan or Neil Young does. I mean, Joni Mitchell doesn't really have a Greendale or a trans or, you know, a Christian phase. And I think it's telling that, like, because Wild Things Run Fast and trans kind of came out around the same time, like, they kind of dragged each other down, I think, in some ways, where it was, like, these, like, 
70s singer-songwriter legends, I think it was easy to see like them doing similar things where in fact, I don't think they were. I mean, not to take away from trans, but I think like if you look at Joni Mitchell's catalog, there is a consistency to the stories she's telling. Like you pointed out, Winston, where it's like, you know, you can follow the thread and see she never like lost it. Right. You know, and I think it's like a failure of the industry or the mechanisms within it that it was treated like that. Like so early on, it was like, you know, you can look back and see negative reviews of Blue and Hissing of Summer Lawns, like how much she was expected to be a flash in the pan yeah, or, you know, a product or someone who didn't have longevity. And yeah, so it's just a different kind of late career album than we've gotten to talk about. Yeah. Which, which we have discussed, like how this episode would necessarily be tonally different because I mean, it's only, we're only a few episodes in, but so much of what we're doing is kind of like poking fun at the excess and indulgence and misguided impulses of, of older male musicians. And, uh, as you said, Sam, like as a woman, she was not given the sort of leash, the long leash of a Bob Dylan that allowed her to sort of just indulge in her silliest tendencies. Yeah, I don't know. She was always being pitted against men for her achievements. Like, I mean, I remember reading a Hissing of Summer Lawns review where it was like Zuma and Hissing of Summer Lawns covered in the same piece. And I love Zuma, but it was like Zuma is like a masterpiece and Hissing of Summer Lawns is like crap, you know. Then there's a story about Dylan. She she, she brought in Court and Spark, I believe, to the studio uh, demos of Court and Spark or something, and Dylan brought in Planet Waves, and Dylan fell asleep for Court and Spark, and they were all the execs were much more excited about Planet Waves, which is like, yeah, I think one of my least listened to Dylan albums of all time, and just not a canon like not a canonical great statement. So let's talk about this album and all the. And how it kind of synthesizes this, these themes, and you know why is why is it so beautiful and good, and why do we love it? Yes, this is the beginning of the record, which is makes you think you're about to hear like a Nine Inch Nails album or something, <laughs> and then it quickly changes direction. Now it's a little Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Pretty amazing. I feel like I feel like the song is one of the more um, elaborate musical numbers on the record. For sure. Yes. I love this song. It's really making the most of the MIDI guitar capabilities. Yeah, to me it's like we're less than a minute and a half in and I already feel like it's like a whole world, you know? Yes. One thing we're getting here that's like to me sort of the most the thing that would seem the most incongruous about this album if you heard it on paper is those big chunks of distorted guitar that come in every once in a while 
uh, which she describes as like heavy metal guitar in a quote about the album. And it's really true. Like there's these kind of crazy power chords that you hear every once in a while, but they like somehow are really working with everything else that's going on. Yeah. We should say, I mean, the deal with this thing uh, is called a VG-8. And it was sort of, I feel like, invented for her, or like, to, like, you know, at least modified for her. But she could plug her, like, Stratocaster into this thing and, you know, just play in one tune. She didn't want to change tunings all the time live and stuff. It was frustrating for her. So this allowed her to just, just have somebody else dial in the tunings for the songs. That was part of it. But then also it created these sonic possibilities, which she had funny things to say about. I was just going to say, like, you know, maybe another area in which she's, like, under-heralded as a master is, like, as at the playing of this instrument, the MIDI guitar, which, as we said at the beginning of the episode, is not really regarded as a cool instrument. Uh, but when you look at the way that other people who famously played it, to me, like, two of the most famous people I can think of are Jerry Garcia and Pat Metheny, um, who were basically like playing solos on guitar, but just using it to control the sound of a different instrument. So that it's like a Jerry Garcia guitar solo, but it sounds like a flute or Pat Metheny guitar solo, but it sounds like a saxophone. And Joni's really like playing it like a different instrument it doesn't just sound so much like, okay, here's a Joni Mitchell guitar part, but it's on a synth. Like she's really kind of like using it for its own special properties rather than using it to just try to imitate the sound of something else, which uh, is like amazing. I mean, it's a sound that's like nothing else I've ever heard before. It has that kind of slickness to it, but it's like so abstract. And so um, kind of like deconstructed. Right. Something that I think is worth bringing up is part of the reason why Turbulent Indigo was seen as such a comeback was because it kind of returned her to the textures of her 70s work. It was almost entirely acoustic, uh, especially in the second half where the songs are all kind of in the same tuning. And it's very much like a song cycle of like what you think of when you think of a singer songwriter like her. And after that album, she put out a collection called Hits and a collection called Misses that were sort of like career spanning. So with an album like this, it would have been really easy for her to basically make Turbulent Indigo 2 and make another album of kind of like acoustic bass songs, sort of, I mean, MTV Unplugged was huge at the time, sort of like, I mean, I guess this is a little later than that, but still throughout the 90s. And instead she makes this really weird, almost sterile ambient seeming uh record i think like it's more experimental than it's given credit for yeah so it leads off the song is kind of about i think about growing up in saskatchewan and seeing like a traveling show coming through town that kind of was like kind of lascivious and reflective of you know like jazz and American black culture, Harlem and Havana, and like how it kind of bewitched her basically. And so, yeah, you kind of start in childhood. And then the next song is Man From Mars, which was a song that she was um, asked to write for a soundtrack for a movie called Grace of My Heart, which is about Brill building songwriters and, and like professional songwriters, which is kind of weird. 
and she didn't want to write it, but then she found a way in by writing about her cat, Nietzsche. <laughs> so that's what this Since song is about. I lost you. I can't get through the day without at least one big boo. Yeah, like the way the keys sound in this, it's almost like a weird MIDI recreation of some of like those For the Roses piano ballads, like that kind of slinking thing, you know? Yeah, it's a weird sound. Yeah, it it reminds me always of... to once again compare her unfairly to Neil Young, uh, like it's like a, it always reminds me of those weird melodramatic string flourishes in A Man Needs a Maid. But uh, way better, like, way way better. Oh yeah, definitely. That song is no good. This song is great. There, I mean, there is like a movie soundtrack vibe here. <laughs> Although the movie it was used in seems to be insanely goofy. But I do love that it's about her cat. It's a reflective of kind of this, you know, past everything state of mind that she'd write this song. That seems to be about like a mysterious man, but it's actually about how her cat looks like an alien and is giving her, giving her, <laughs> giving her hell. Also, that's her, her cat is on the cover too. Right. That's, it's important. Cat is on the cover. Obviously the song, the timing, taming the tiger is the name of the album so there's a you know the last verse of that song i call and call the silence is so full of sounds you're in them all i hear you in the water and the wiring in the walls is like so incredibly beautiful and poignant and it's so funny that it's about her cat yeah yeah i mean who knows if yeah, she's amazing. being a little facetious the the fact that she did it she's like found this way in to do it to the movie soundtrack uh kind of jokingly Kind of reminds me of when she wrote You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio, which is on For the Roses. Also just like a fucking amazing like pop song. Right. That sort uh, of t- but, is a takedown of pop songs in a way. Yeah. She kind of wrote it as a joke. Like she's like, you want to hit Geffen? And she wrote. The, and so I feel like there's some maybe affinity there. Next song is fucking great. Just one of my favorites. Uh, Love Puts on a New Face. Yeah, this is top five Joni songs for me, I'd say. Whoa. Damn. I mean, you can hear here. Yeah, really good example of her guitar technique. Yeah, totally. And this is like kind of insofar as like an old school Kijira guitar part. Like it, ha- it has that. I mean, the textures are different, but it has that. Yeah. It has, it has that traditional feel a little more. We are as young as the night. It's a- absolutely amazing lyrics. I said no telephones ringing, no company coming, just the lap of the lake and the firelight. See you munching on some brie, Winston. <laughs> the brie tastes really good right now. How's the brie taste? Yeah. When I hear this song, it's like the brie tastes like the best food I've ever eaten. What is a, what's a line you particularly like in this song, Winston? Um... I love that. I guess, is it the last verse? Yeah, the last verse is incredible. He said, I the wish... The one about the, le- the autumn leaves and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He said, I wish you were with me here. The leaves are electric. They burn on the riverbank. Countless heatless flames. I said, send me some pictures then, and I'll paint pyrotechnic explosions of your autumn till we meet again. I miss your touch and your lips so much. I long for our next embrace. 
you know, classic poetic images there. And also, yeah, this kind of this touch of sweetness that this record has. It's all kind of specific. It's like, oh, you know, get these pictures. I'm going to I'm going to paint an image of the pictures you send. You know, she was painting, obviously. There's kind of this little callback to um, in France, they kiss on Main Street in the song, too, that I like. Where she just says, in France, they say love puts on a new face. So it's just like a it's like a, a late, a really beautiful late era statement. Like that image to me of uh, uh, those those lyrics are like kind of like a more mature love or more mature connection or something. And then kind of the guitar calling back to earlier work and the kind of reference to that song's line or that whatever trope, if it's not intentional. Yeah. That's what I'll say about that slapper. You pouring yourself some seltzer? This is whiskey now. Oh, nice. I decided I'm going to try to stay sober for these because I can't remember which one it was, but I drank during one of them. And then when I listened back to it, I was like, I sound sloppy. No, you sound great. I'm not choosing my words correctly. I'm going to take this one slowly. I'm doing these dry. I have finished, by the way my glass of my other beverage what other beverage oh grady's cold yeah Yeah. tell us about that which we should talk about briefly again in case you uh are jumping in in the middle here and missed the beginning grady's cold brew uh drink that has tremendous significance for the three of us as podcasters of welcome to chicago and personal friends of grady's who is a real person lives in the bronx uh, Grady's Cold Brew, independently owned and operated, delicious session cold brew, as he likes to call it. Uh, New Orleans style coffee, hint of chicory and, and spice, uh, available in jugs you can buy if you live around New York or some other locations. You can just get it at, at the bodega, but you can order it all through their website. You can get a big old. Uh, box of it or you can um, do the Grady's cold brew kit which saves you some money you can brew it yourself and buy after you finish it you can buy more bags it's a really amazing uh, way to just keep the Grady's train going for yourself in an affordable way that's much less expensive than most cold brew Um, and uh, if you are like many of us having a tough go of it emotionally sometimes in this COVID era I will say you know sometimes you wake up in the morning you're feeling down you gotta brew yourself coffee in order to get out of bed it can feel like this insurmountable task and I will say that knowing that you have a fridge full of ice cold smooth gradies really helps you to get out of bed in the morning and uh, take on the day like a champ even when uh, you're feeling down so mm-hmm. Think about that. Anyway, uh, you can get a special promotion on Grady's uh, because you're a Late Era listener. You can use the code LATEERA20. That's uh, capital L, capital E at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can uh, you know, get a 20% discount that way off your first order. Back to Taming the Tiger now that uh, Lady Andy's cat is in the room. She is, yeah. We can really get. She's feeling the feline vibes of this album. We can really get started out on my lap. Yeah. Well, here's what I'll say, which is that um, all the first half of this album, great, amazing, beautiful songs on it. But for me, where 
all almost all like late era Joni. For me, the magic happens in the second half. Not to again compare, but kind of similar to modern Dylan, where it's like it gets everything kind of congeals and the stars align and every song just kind of hits me really hard. All my favorite stuff on here is in the second half when the songs get really spare and it's just her and the guitar. Uh, one of my favorites is Stay in Touch. It's mm-hmm. my sec. It's a tie, almost a tie for Fave. Another uh, very uh, Hijira-esque guitar sound oh, yeah. and vibe on this one. I mean, I love this song because it's so simple lyrically, but it's so sharp and so wise. And the way she sings it, her delivery is just perfect. This is really something. Um, will be playing trumpet right now, we have Mark Isham, who is fabulous new age musician, film score composer, worked on some 80s Van Morrison albums. This is the best. And this, yeah, I was going to say um, late era icon. He's on yes. Springsteen Human Touch from 92. He's great. He's on later David Sylvan. He's on this. He's on Van. I was going to recommend his Wyndham Hill records from the 80s to oh, solo yeah. records. His debut album, uh, Vapor Drawings. If you're an LP head, I think it might not even be on Spotify, but you got to hit YouTube for that if you want to hear it on the internet. Fuck Spotify, right? You can buy that record. Yes. You can write, buy that LP for like three or four dollars at any reasonable record store. So anyway, he's great. A funny thing about him, not to get too much into Mark Isham talk, but I was watching a movie recently. I think it was Point Break. <laughs> yeah. Original score by Mark Isham. He does. He's done all, no s- all sorts of shit. Yeah, he's got a v- extremely normy film score composing career, and extremely prolific. Uh, the, he's he's scored my least favorite movie of all time, so you know that's complicated. Crash, the uh, two thousand six uh, crash, crash, yeah, yeah. the well known least favorite oh, movie of all well, time. Don't fucking see it. Um, anyways, stay in touch. Uh, this is a it's an emotional one for me. There's something about the way she sings it. It's like her tone is like the tone of like when you're like saying goodbye to someone and you don't want to leave. Like her words come out in these kind of like clusters of like, this is the last thing I want to say. Or just one more thing. Yeah. Like that one part where she's like, um, what's the line? She's like, in the middle of this continent, in the middle of our time on earth, we perceive one another, stay in touch. It's like she's going to say something else. I don't know. It's just like totally like uh, beautiful and heartbreaking and magical to me with like that little guitar pattern those lines always remind me of chinese cafe when she says we're stuck in the middle middle class middle age feels like a continuation of that middle of the continent right yeah zooming even further out right i love the line where she goes part of this is permanent part of this is passing so we must be loyal and wary not to give away too much I love that. Yeah, it's yeah. it's such a rich, beautiful. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about it. There's there's some people read it as a song about about meeting her daughter. No, I think she's confirmed that. Yeah. If I can make a little detour into the story of how she met her daughter, it's just like so crazy. I feel like. Um, so yeah, she put her daughter up for adoption very early in her career, um, but at some point, really decided that she wanted to find her again and uh, had talked in the press a bit about it 
And uh, the way that it eventually came to pass is that this guy named Wally Brees, uh, who is just a big Joni Mitchell fan, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, um, wanted to have some kind of lasting contribution to the world before he died. And so what he did was set up a website called JoniMitchell.com, which still exists to this day. A great resource. And uh, great resource. They have the tuning to every, the guitar tuning to every Joni Mitchell song. Amazing resource for that alone. Uh, and the chords. Uh, but on this website, with Joni's permission and with some help from her management, he put up uh, a set of qualifications. Like, if you think you might be Joni Mitchell's daughter, uh, like, I guess maybe it was quiz questions or like, I don't exactly understand, but it was this prompt on lo- this prompt online that Joni Mitchell's daughter through a friend of hers who was a fan got hooked into and like contacted this webmaster guy who, and was like, I read this thing on your website and I think I really am her. And she was. And so they got hooked up through Joni Mitchell.com. Which, which happened, I think, like a year and a half or so before uh, this album came out. Even then, the internet was powerful. Yeah. Mm. Have you, yeah, are you, you know what I mean? Even when you had to dial up. I, another song near the end of the record <laughs> I wanted to talk about was uh, My Best to You, another beautiful one, and another like goodbye song, like a farewell type deal. This is one I always put on like playlists or mixes if I make them for people just because it just like kind of comes out of nowhere. So here's to you. May your dreams come true. May your father time never be unkind. And through It's almost like she's trying to like conjure an orchestra with like all the synths and stuff. Yeah, it sounds like an arrangement of like a Frank Sinatra song or something, but like rendered all in synth. With that pedal steel on the back, it's gorgeous. I mean, it is a song from the 40s, right? So it's like, it literally is that. It's a a song written by like 40s swing band leaders which is sort of typical move for her, you know, on her 70s albums, is to kind of close out with a, a jazz song, basically, or like a favorite old song of hers, Court and Spark, Hissing. So that's kind of an old school move for her too, which is nice, nice callback. Um, Although we do have the funny, the funny thing that right. this album actually closes with a CD bonus track. Is it a bonus track? Oh uh, yeah, I think this is beautiful too. Yeah, this is this is we haven't talked about the the title track which is this is related to, but Yeah, well it's uh, an instrumental version of the title track mm-hmm. where you can really focus on the guitar part and I always I never heard this as a bonus track. I always thought this was the official closing song and I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was official that. too. Um it's kind of grim title, you know. It's called Tiger Bones, but you know, it's just because it's the bones of the song, bones taming, of the song. taming the tiger, which we should talk about because that's interesting, and also I think a great song. The subject is interesting. 
So it's kind of like a kiss off to the music industry in a way. This is like the the real uh, center of like the being fed up vibe on this album. Uh, like every verse has that boring, <laughs> which I like. But it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm a runaway from the record biz. Every disc a poker chip. Every song just a one night stand. Formula music, girly guile, genuine junk food for juveniles. Up and down the dial, mercenary style. So pretty clear. It's so interesting, like if you said oh this album is sort of half lyrically about bitterness about the way that the record industry has treated you and you know your rejection of it and half uh contentedness and love and family and just a general sense of kind of well-being and and comfort uh with your own position in life like the I would think like that sounds like super incoherent and that those things don't have anything to do with each other. But actually like the album feels like such a coherent statement, despite those things seeming so dissonant on paper, which I think is like a real testament to, I don't exactly know how she did it, but, but she did. I think part of it for me is she found a texture that really suits the material and helps it congeal. Like the combo of message and medium is really good on this for me because the songs are kind of sparse, but they're not organic sounding. So it allows them to be, it allows the subject matter to be more transient and more direct. I don't know. something about it. It really works in a way that like even turbulent indigo seems less cohesive to me than this does because you get songs like sex kills and then you get the like really contented ones it it, it may be the most like well night ride home's pretty consistent i guess but um not as much well i mean even that yeah that's kind of got its outliers but i i I was gonna say that the the, this aspect of it and we haven't talked about the song but it, it it's sort of like hajira in the way in the way it preserves a mood and textures but then you have the Black Crow of the album, which unfortunately is not as good as Black Crow and is kind of a weak link, for, in my perspective, Lead Balloon, which is another mm-hmm. part of the, the angry side of the album. I've come around to this song a little more as time has gone on. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't hate it. Too. I don't hate it by any means. It's just like... Kiss my ass, I sit. Great opening <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I like to hear it say "kiss my hand." 
There's something like kind of like 90s fusion about this that I like. Yeah, an angry woman is just Really goofy lyrics. Yeah, I don't begrudge you this song. And the album, it's like the same way, it this serves the same purpose that like Spare Parts serves on Tunnel of Love, you know? You just kind of get a scene of like someone like throwing their drink in someone's face. Yeah. But... Who knows? Yeah, that was when I first was getting into <laughs> Taming the Tiger a couple years ago, and I was like, this song, Lead Balloon, sucks. I remember you were like, think of it as the Black Crow of the album. Yeah. Which an attempt which, to get me to which come I, I, it a little I, I love Black Crow, so it's like, a, that's the way it help, helps it go down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Almost like if that's the worst song on the record, it's a pretty good record for me. Totally. You know? Totally. Because it's like you put that on... I don't know a different Joni album, and it's kind of like, oh, it's like you know. Well, I mean, next I to know. the goofy songs on '80s Joni's album, at Joni album, it's like not even a contest. I think I'll lead us into a discussion of of at least one other song on this record, which yeah. is uh, one one of my favorites that we haven't really discussed yet, which is called "No Apologies." It's another one that like the music really sounds like Hajira, and most of it is about kind of like the atrocities of war and specifically like of of men in positions of power that that they commit and and sort of like the way that they ultimately contribute to like the destruction of the entire planet yeah and then in the second verse um she has this little allusion to like what i guess is just an interpersonal relationship she says Freddie said that Juan thinks I think he's the devil. What a lofty title for such a petty little tyrant. Uh-huh. And like all of a sudden, it's like a song about people she knows. And like all this other stuff is like, well, compared, you, you think you, you think you have like drawn out such, such hatred in me, but like you're nothing compared to like the, the real movers and shakers of evil in this world is like such a strange but amazing twist to happen in the middle of this song yeah i mean this right so the the original impetus for the song what the first verse is about is this uh, u.s military rape scandal that occurred in okinawa around this time and it's interesting because it's like what we've been talking about with the other songs it's like okay it's ostensibly about this thing but then it gets into all these resonances that are right not discernibly about that subject or are you totally digestible in relationship to something in your own life or in your own head which you know isn't that kind of the mark of a great songwriter my friends she's also got the great line lawyers and loan sharks are laying america to waste to close out the chorus of this song which is like just a badass lyric ain't it true though yeah 
Sam, would you What's say it's Donald true? Trump, but uh, the world's worst loan shark. I'd say it's true. Yeah. yeah. And it's a theme she really laid into on her next album of originals, uh, on Shine from 2007. And I don't know a whole lot about the 2000s. Like, she kind of acted like this was going to be the last album, but um, then she did obviously her beautiful standards album. Uh, both sides now and shine which was music for a ballet right well between both sides now and shine was travelogue which was like the two disc collection of like new orchestral versions of songs from throughout her catalog which is really phenomenal uh the shine is the songs are like from a bunch of different projects um there's stuff that was written for a ballet there was a new version of big yellow taxi yeah there were some songs that sort of came out of nowhere and like a bolt of inspiration around that time. I think it's a great album. Uh, um, yeah, it's a totally different atmosphere than the 90s stuff. There's a lot more piano. Um, it's like a cool mix of her sort of acoustic setting and the more like surreal setting of this album, but also super underrated. Mm-hmm. Let's let's get into our final segment. Uh, not going to be many surprises here, but maybe we can shed light on a few last points. Yeah, so the final segment of the show, as you know by now, if you're a regular listener, and if not, uh, we'll tell you about it, is called Fantasies, Fantasy or Delusion. Still don't quite know it myself, evidently. Uh in reference to a Billy Joel album of classical piano music that we will discuss someday on this podcast. But until then, we will continue to hype you up for it with the name of this segment. Boils down to two things. Is this album a fantasy or is it a delusion? Uh, Is it good or is it bad? Is it uh, brilliant or shit? And most of the time, it's an open question. But uh, in this episode, maybe not so much. We came into it knowing all three of us uh, love the record. Uh, but who wants to start? I'll kick things off. Um, fantasy for me. I love it. Love 90s Joni. Love recent Joni. Uh, deserves more than she got. Um, I mean, we've been very effusive in our praise. It's not a perfect album. I, For me, you know, it's not like up there with the 70s stuff I really love but I think it is super inspired and visionary in its own way and I also think a lot of the music I listen to now draws from similar things she was starting to get into around this time the combination of folk music and new age music the idea that you could write beautiful timeless songs backed by just like this kind of burbling synth I really love that, and it's a really peaceful listen for me that also gets into the kind of hard truths and dark sides of, you know, the dark things that people can experience the way that only she can do. Um, And, yeah, for me, love it. Love this album. Uh, Yeah, it's absolutely a fantasy for me, too. No question about it. Um, I'll use my time here to just talk about 
Once more, the particular sonic quality of this record, uh, recently revisiting it a bunch this week, like I found myself after hearing Tiger Bones, uh, that uh, instrumental of the title track that happens at the end, thinking like, I would honestly love to hear an instrumental version of this entire record. And it's not because I don't like the songs, they're, um, they're beautiful, uh, but uh, the, the music itself is just so, it's just this such a strange blend, like Sam said, of kind of new age and folk, but also jazz. Um, you have uh, on almost every song, um, Wayne Shorter is playing uh, these saxophone lines that on soprano sax that are like so soft, but have so much activity happening at the same time. They sort of mirror that burbling quality of the synth. They play off of each other. Uh, the drums are muted most of the time. You have pedal steel peeking in at the margins. Occasionally, this heavy distorted guitar slashing through that somehow doesn't disrupt the tranquil mood most of the time. It's just such a singular sounding record. And then on top of that, you have these beautiful, nuanced, uh, honest songs that she's written. Um, and uh, it's just it's just great i i love it and it's a fantasy yeah uh such a fantasy i mean just like doing this episode now it's like this this music has really transformed the past like year for me um and just outside of all that stuff uh, that andy said and sam said uh it really is like a lyrical masterclass to me it's um in a different way even than something like Hajira or her older albums that I love, which are more wordy, um, kind of pyrotechnic, rhythmic stuff going on. So some of these are very spare, and they're still like these kind of exclamations that are speech-like, you know. But um, there's this thing, as I was saying, about all these songs are kind of ostensibly about something, and you can tell it's about the music business, it's about... Maybe her daughter is about her. There's you know, a song about her mom. You know, there, there's little that's like, this is explicitly a love song or something. But a lot of them kind of come off. They're about human relationships in a variety of ways and reflecting back on on your behaviors and like kind of, kind of learning from the past. Um, and all of them do this thing where, you know, they have these li- these classic kind of phrases that they land on like stay in touch no apologies these things these are like hanging your hat phrases that can just make a song coalesce like as you as these verses move to being these profound sentiments they make every verse is a bit different it's not necessarily about uh discernibly about the same thing but you know that's something i just without nerding out about my own stuff that's like it's something that leonard cohen does really well too as andy was saying the voice and perspective here is completely different. The delivery, obviously, but it's just the mark. It's just like my some of my favorite, my favorite thing a songwriter can do with lyrics and structure. Honestly, right now in my life, it's just, I think about what she does here all the time. So, um, check this album out, please. Hey! If you're a Joni hater and you made it this far, I hope that you feel bad. <laughs> I hope that you feel bad about yourself. And to be nicer, uh, I hope that you check out all these, you know, records that may have sounded interesting to you and this record as well. 
Well, boys, we did it. It's a serious episode. Yeah. How's it? How did it feel? I, I, it feels good. I ate so much brie. I feel a little sick. Brie is the cheese for a serious man. I think so. I was yeah. I was just ravenously eating that brie by the end, which means the record got me excited and in a good in a good mood because it really tasted like shit when I started. I thought really tasteless. So. And for that, we're grateful. Yes. Thank Amen. you to Grady again uh, for this second sponsored episode. Second. Uh, and listen, we only have two contractually obligated uh, ad uh, mentions of Grady's. Right now, this is just pure love that you're hearing. Exactly. This is off contract, off the books, just pure expression. I, I felt really good talking to you guys about music that I've talked to you both so much about uh independently over over the years here like about an artist yeah it's good to formalize it get it on tape yeah love to Joni. love to sam and andy love you guys love you too all my love thanks for tuning into late era 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 thanks for tuning into late era my friends and uh we'll see you next time what's coming up next time sam uh, next week, we'll be talking about the Iron and Wine reggae album, Lion of Judah in My Stepdaughter's Garden. Cool. Classic. Uh, That's a good uh, one. Classic. Famous. Underrated. Yeah. 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 It's like when Sam Beam does like the fake Patois thing, it's like a little yeah. much. Kind of offensive. But you can yeah. forgive it. Yeah. One of our iconic, right. our iconic artists of all time, Iron and Wine. Glad to talk about that record. Um, okay, folks. Hasta la vista. Say something, something. In another language. Hasta la vista. Oh, um. <laughs> you tricked me. Uh, ciao. Ciao. Au revoir. Goodbye. The Late Era Podcast is hosted by Andy Cush, Winston Cook Wilson, and Sam Sadowski. It is edited and produced by Winston Cook Wilson. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJ Beach. Logo designed by Liz B. Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media. All habits, all habits, stay in